0: I'm Cody Comers, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. For many of us, life is a process of minimizing uncertainty. We spend our days trying to eliminate uncertainty from our lives, find the right career path, the right partner, buy a house, or at least find a sense of long-term settledness, raise a family, and put our kids on track to the right college so they can start the process over again, finding the right career, the right partner, and so on. The implicit idea in this is that there's a point in life where we reach quiescence, where all the big problems are figured out. But here's the thing. Life doesn't work like that. Life is not a problem to be solved. It cannot be terminally fixed. Something can always go wrong. There's always the next thing. And so if you're living your life, even tacitly, under the assumption that it's possible to reach this point, you are operating according to the wrong model of the world. These are themes that I've long been grappling with in my own life, and they're resonant in the work of my guest today, the author and philosopher John Keg. Keg is a professor of philosophy at UMass Lowell, but he has that rare quality of someone who makes his living as an academic philosopher but lives his life as a classical philosopher. To him, ideas aren't just for arguing about. If you're getting them right, they should tell you something, hopefully something important, about living. He's a student of the work of William James, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Henry David Thoreau. His books include American Philosophy, A Love Story, Hiking with Nietzsche, and Sick Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James Can Save Your Life. A theme that runs through the work of these thinkers, and by extension John's own, is how uncertainty is crucial to meaning-making. In a way, once something has become certain in our own life, it gets taken for granted. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we can readily identify this effect, whether in a complacent relationship or in pursuit of material comfort, or whatever it may be. Once it's all shored up, it no longer seems like something so worth striving after that you can build your life around it. It's sort of like artificial intelligence. Whatever milestone AI successfully achieves... Gary Marcus will be there to tell you that, well, that's not what AI really is. I think there's something important in the idea that uncertainty is something to embrace, not just because it's a fundamental and inescapable part of life, but because it can also be a source of great meaning. If that's something you're interested in being more closely in tune with, I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. That's the main feed for my content where I publish both my weekly podcasts and a weekly essay. Subscribing to that is the single biggest way you can support the show. You can find the feed at themeaninglab.com. That's themeaninglab.com. And if you're listening on Spotify, please consider giving The Meaning Lab podcast a five-star rating. It takes four seconds. If you are on The Meaning Lab homepage where it shows the logo and says follow or following, click the three dots. Then it'll say rate show. Select the fifth star and press submit that's it. And it helps a ton in growing the show's audience on the platform. You can also click the follow button to subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is John Keg. Is there a specific book that you read perhaps earlier on in life that really gave you a sense of the power of, of books and like what it can do for you? Was there like one thing that like, was that early thing that you can look back to?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's this thing, um, the university of Nebraska put out a freshman primer or, um, called the Nebraska plan for their freshmen. And it was filled with, um, Einstein and Pascal and, um, William James and Margaret Fuller and uh, all of these short sort of short excerpts. And when I was in eighth grade, we were assigned the Nebraska plan and my mom sat down next to me. And I remember going through a section of Walden where I'm like, oh, this is personal writing. Like, I see what's going on here. And like, I, I see I see a guy struggling to figure out what the meaning of life is for himself and trying to help you know, help others do the same. So, I mean, reading the Nebraska plan with her and then particularly the segment from Walden, I would say.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. I can see how that kind of, uh, laid the groundwork. Can you maybe draw a line between that sort of thing and sort of the broad strokes of, of your professional career and and your background and and what you do and, and how you came to do it?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I was always rather suspicious of philosophy's efficacy in the real world. And um, it seemed to be jeopardizing its own relevance relevancy on a fairly continual basis. And um, I made a promise to myself and to my mother also and to my very practically minded family that if I went into philosophy, I would try to make it more practical and more um, sort of personal and down-to-earth than the vast majority of contemporary disciplinary philosophy does. And so I went through undergrad. I did a simultaneous BA and MA in philosophy, and I was pretty young at the time. And um, then I went to... I left philosophy for a time and went into international relations and got my MPhil at Cambridge. But then I was like, you know, I'd really not like to work for, for the government, and I really would like to work... In philosophy and go back. So that's when I went for my PhD. And you have to jump through a number of hoops for tenure, very academic, very boring, siloed writing experiments that really sort of disabuse you of the idea that writing could be interesting. And um, that then, um, after I got through that process, when I got tenure at UMass, I decided to write for a general audience. And that's the place where philosophy, for me, got very interesting again. So what I try to do in my writings is to blend memoir and philosophy um in, you know, either Hiking with Nietzsche, um, where it's very memoir-based, or Six Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James Can Save Your Life, which is personal and slightly memoir, but then tries to show how philosophy can impact a life, right? That's what I'm up to and so I go back to Pierre Hadot's idea when he was thinking about the ancients that the ancients didn't think about philosophy as a particular intellectual discipline but rather as um, very very smart self-help or self-help for the smart set I guess but like a way of thinking through the business of living and that's the way that I take philosophy today
0: that kind of reminds me of this distinction in psychology between what I'll call the experiential self versus the, the narrative self. And this is something that I've been thinking a lot about in the context of, of meaning and experience and all that sort of stuff recently. And the basic idea here is that when you ask questions like, well, you know, how happy are you? How satisfied are you? That sort of stuff. there are really two different selves who can potentially answer that. One is the experiential self who, you know, is in the moment asking, what am I bodily feeling right now? And then the other one, the narrative self is looking back, trying to take a little bit more abstract understanding of, you know, what do I make of my life and what I've been up to? Um, So with that kind of like as a background, I'm curious, there's almost this kind of tension in your work where I don't want to say you are unhappy all the time. In the sort of experiential self, but there's certainly this theme of like okay, my in the moment self is not thrilled about things on a uh, you know sort of scale of like uh, things are okay to things you know uh, maybe i 'll kill myself um, but then there's a lot of richness in the narrative self, so all that is is to say what how do you sort of deal with that tension? how do you sort of think about that?" What 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 are the the trade offs there? How, what do you, what do you make of all that?
1: It's difficult writing memoir because you when you write memoir you're always describing a past self, right? And and that's inevitable, right? Memoir is written in hindsight, and the the fact is is that so American philosophy and the love story and hiking with with uh, Nietzsche were written during a time in my life when um, I was feeling very pointedly. A lot of the sort of biological and for me personal historical factors which oftentimes very very you know in a pronounced way so for example um my father when I was writing American philosophy and love story and hiking with Nietzsche I had gone through a first divorce I was um uh, I was extremely anxious. I, my father had just died. I was trying to piece together a new life. I was in the midst of trying to get tenure. I was like, you know, I was pretty stressed out and pretty miserable. And, um, and those are, those are time specific, but I'll, but I'll be more honest. I mean, like, my dispositionally i think chemical chemically i am just predisposed to anxiety depression suicidal ideation like like i do not experience the universe as a particularly like welcoming place for me right it, or i used to like it's it's changed a little and i'll talk about that but so in part i'm saying to folks who read like Nietzsche for example which is definitely the darkest book I've ever written to this point or published maybe not written um, the, the what I'm saying to an, an audience is hey I'm trying to give you a picture of my existential situation the way I interpret my existential situation which is like we are meat sacks there's no like pixie dust that's gonna help us out we're not gonna like be trans." transmitted to some other region like this is it okay and um the universe is largely absurd and i'm stuck facing the absurd and it really sucks a bunch of the time and i'm saying that to an audience at least in part to say hey if you feel this you are not alone like you're not crazy to feel this right but then the narrative what you've described as the narrative approach the sort of richness of the narrative approach is what i'm trying to do is sort out my own stuff or my own shit right i'm what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to say here's my experiential self why do i feel this way and i'm trying to get a hold of myself on the page which means i'm going back and thinking and writing about my you know my father and how he treated me and then i'm thinking about Um, him trying to commit suicide and then I'm thinking about how my mother responded to that insecurity by like clamping down on us and I'm trying to give a sort of historical picture as best as I can and and as honestly as I can about where or how the history has led me to have this experiential state which I think is pretty, I mean for myself it's helpful to write but in part I'm giving some sort of I don't know. Um You know the Delphic Oracle, Know Thyself, or or you know, Socrates saying the un unexamined life is not worth living, or is not not a life suitable to a human being, which is a more exact definition. Like the the narrative is you trying to figure out or you're at your best attempts to get a hold of yourself, right? You know, when you when somebody says to you, like, get a hold of yourself you do that through a sort of narrative approach, which I, I have taken in a number of my books. Now, um, one of the things that happened, I had a cardiac arrest and had bypass surgery in 2020. And, um, after bypass surgery and after being dead for three minutes and being brought back, like my life has changed pretty dramatically and it's changed the way that I experience the world and the necessity for, me to rehash things in a narrative way, which has really compromised and changed the way that I write. So if you don't have the experiential self sense that things are really off base, you sometimes don't feel the impetus to, you know, try to die. You don't have anything to dissect. So I've really, I mean, I've struggled creatively with that issue with memoir. Uh, I mean, my wife now, Kathleen says, like you're happy, like you're, and I am. I'm generally generally a, a pretty happy person, and I don't have that much to write about. It's like, what, <laughs> what write? It's like, what are you going to write? Like, what are you going to write about? Like, this is not your shtick. So, anyway, that's 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 a very long way of trying to address that narrative and experiential side.
0: There's a, a Langston Hughes quote that I love to that effect, which uh, in his in his own memoir he talks about. Uh, how, well, you know, when I was happy, it was great, but I didn't write any good poetry. It was only when I was fundamentally profoundly sad on an existential level that I wrote my best shit. And so I guess going off that, um, I guess maybe this is a comment about the nature of memoir, which autobiography is one of my personal favorite genres. And I think that's what made me so excited about your, uh, your work. Um, uh, but I guess just sort of going off what you said before, before I get into some of those other things, there's an interesting sort of dissociation here. Whereas this is one of the reasons why I like talking about meaning instead of happiness in life. Um, because you can take any combination of happy, sad, positive, negative, up, down previous experience and create that meaningful narrative from it. And, it might take a lot of work it might be non trivial to do you might start off with a narrative that is bleaker or less wise or whatever it is than than uh than you may ultimately want to end up as um but that's such a powerful thing that both intuitively the way we tell our life stories, sort of to ourselves and the people around us, and also for people like you who do it professionally in this really concrete, explicit sense. So, Um, I mean, what you've
1: just said is something that resonates really closely with what Nietzsche saw in the idea of tragedy. So, I mean, life is really, human life, is pointedly difficult. Like, Arthur Schopenhauer is not wrong when he says that You know, life is a trial to be endured. And like suffering is we, you know, our lives are shot through with suffering. The Buddhists are right about that. And Nietzsche's Nietzsche says in tragedy is what we do is we tell stories about that suffering that somehow changes them into beauty. And and I think that's an interesting what you just said about, like, the narrative is what gives meaning or can be meaning. Um, and it, you can start at any experiential point, right? But the way that you tell the story, it might be non-trivial to tell the story in a meaningful way, but you can get there. And it's kind of, it's, I find that really interesting and also very um, hopeful in a lot of ways.
0: Uh, okay, yes. And so this is, in my reading, the beauty of the uh, subtitle of your Nietzsche book, Becoming Who You Are, uh, referencing a, a, a quote from Nietzsche. Um, and I think the thing that draws me to that is this tension between the present tense of who you are and the future tense of becoming right. And there's this, this thing that those are fundamentally at odds. You should already be who you are, all all that sort of stuff. And I think this, at least in, in my understanding is one way to read the significance of that is that, uh, being who you are in the terms that we've been talking about is this kind of experiential self. Thing That it's like in in any given moment you are who you are and you're feeling the way you're feeling and okay, that's that. And then the becoming process is being able to look back on that and doing everything that you're talking about, which is the sort of construction of meaning and the enterprise of sense making and all of this sort of stuff to create beauty out of it, to create wisdom out of it, to, to create, you know, some sort of contextualization that, that places it in some significant role. Does that, does that sound right to you? Does that square with your uh, how you think about that line becoming who you are?
1: Yeah, I do. I also think that the the process of becoming um, is we oftentimes think about the self as necessarily secure and static because we just want our lives to be, you know, safe, and we want to. I mean, in some ways, we want to. Re- we think we want to remain the same, and we think the only way to do that is that ourselves don't change and that process uh, you you came close to saying like you have the experience but then you can rework that experience over and over and over again and this circle is not a vicious one but the way that we craft meaning it's that we might have an experience and then we go and it's a recursive process of making meaning from the experiences as we move along and that's in part that's, um, if I mean, for the readers or for the, for listeners who have read Hiking with Nietzsche at the end of Hiking with Nietzsche, I'm coming to that realization is that, that there's this idea that what happens to you, Nietzsche has this idea of the amor fati, which is the love of fate, which seems to be one of like pure resignation, but I don't interpret it that way. Nietzsche says that we must come to not only bear, but love those instances that are most despicable to us in our own lives, which is that process of going back and gathering, recollecting and pulling forward into the future in a particularly new way, which means that the process of becoming yourself, becoming who you are, isn't a one and done sort of situation, but it's something that's always on the move. And, um, and and I think that real psychological um, distress is caused when you try very pointedly to um, bring that process to a definitive end. And um, so, yeah, I think that you're I mean, what you're describing about meaning making is, I think, very consonant with Nietzsche's idea about becoming who you are.
0: So I, I do want to note something about hiking with Nietzsche because that is where I first found your work and, and where I got into the rest of it from. And when I came across that book, I was so excited because for a long time I've had this minor obsession with the idea of a crossover book between the genres of travel and, you know, for lack of a better term, big ideas. And, uh, it goes back to the core of your philosophical approach, which is that if our ideas are useful, if they're going to actually have some sort of power to make our lives more meaningful or worthwhile in some in some sort of important way, then they should resonate with our experience of the world. And for me, travel has been such an important experiential component of you know uh, my my own path, my own learning, and, and that sort of stuff. But yet, there are so few books where acts of travel and the evaluation of rigorous ideas is really combined. Sure, sure, lots of travel books, like, they do have some sort of intellectual component or an argument. Usually, it's pretty abstract, uh, and, you know, obviously, some uh, idea books, you know, they use stories and, and that sort of stuff, but yours is one of the few that really puts them together in a compelling way, and, and as we've been talking about, gluing them together with memoir and, and, and all of that sort of stuff, uh, but it's just so special, so um, I guess maybe... You know, to speak to this generally and and start to to get into some of the, the ideas from the the philosophers themselves. What is it about walking and in particular in, in the Swiss Alps that, that can really teach us something about Nietzsche?
1: I'll, I'll say a couple general things and then I'll address the issue with Nietzsche. The general comments are um we walk through li I mean our lives go in one direction, right? They don't i mean maybe mentally we can go back but they chronologically speaking we're moving and we're on the move whether we're sedentary or not we we're like we we live as moving beings and to to tell a memoir without actually describing those movements over space and time space and time i think compromises a memoir period and what i'm trying to do with nietzsche is at least in part um, show how his life traveled a particular physical and temporal course, how my life is following a particular and temporal co- physical and temporal course, and how they map onto each other, and how have they how have they intersected in particular ways. And um, what's nice is that Nietzsche traveled a lot, right? And he was walking a lot. He was a great walker. Although, not, not, he didn't do any serious mountain climbing, not really. But, um, but he loved to walk, and um, following in Nietzsche's footsteps for me when I was 19 was just about the most exciting thing that I had ever done, which sounds like a very nerdy thing to do. But I, I went to Sils Maria, Switzerland when I was 19, um, thanks to a professor who gave me the money to do it. And I was studying Nietzsche at the time. And I wanted to figure out what the mountains could teach me about Nietzsche. And when you're in the mountains, at least when I was, you're alone. You feel both absolutely small and absolutely powerful, which is to say you experience the sublime. You um, have to rely particularly on yourself. You can think about Nietzsche's um, mentor, Ralph Waldo Emerson, saying, uh, trust yourself every heart vibrates to that iron string and you have the time and the space to think about your life uh, to think about fate to think about how you've gotten to be where you are which is what Nietzsche did a lot up in the mountains for himself and it generated I mean he wrote he was most prolific when he lived in Sils Maria and you can see in his work that the mountains and the landscape and being an embodied thinker, being an animal, like breathing deeply, um, finding meaning in the context of nature. These ideas come directly out of this experience. And I think what I was trying to do is actually see if those experience experiences obtained. And in particular, at, when I was 19, I was very interested in what's known as the ascetic ideal, which is, um, the Christian, primarily Christian or religious idea that you deprive yourself in order to, um, have a gateway to God, right? That's the, the, you know, the fasting or the self deprivation or the, and Nietzsche has a critique of that ascetic ideal. Um, and I was interested in exploring it. So I fasted a great deal when I was there. I, I walked a lot, walked more than I should have in a very unhealthy way, um, just to see what that sort of, you know, way of life might mean. I also was very much aware that Nietzsche himself had a very serious ascetic streak. And in other words, he worked himself to the bone. And um, I was interested in, in seeing what asceticism might mean in the place where Nietzsche himself subjected himself to some of his harshest conditions. So that begins to, I guess, answer your question about what's the relationship between walking and Nietzsche, but I'm happy to go on, you know, go on at length if you want.
0: Well, I want to just pick up the thread of walking for a second. This is like just the physical act of walking itself. I feel like is a really undervalued aspect of life, and in particular, what I'm thinking of is that, so, you know, my partner and I, for the most time, you know, in the last three years, we've lived in the U.K., in Oxford, and we don't have a car there. And you know, we walk or bike, but usually walk um, everywhere. and it's highly inefficient. That being said, there's not really anywhere interesting to go in Oxford, so it's not really that much of a hindrance. But, you know, you walk to the store, you walk to see your friends, you walk to coffee, you walk to dinner. Uh, Walking just is the fabric of life. And then when we get back to the U.S., I'm in Seattle right now, we've got a car. And so when you want to go to the store, you hop in there and then, you know, you drive a couple minutes, then you're at the store and everything like that. And it fundamentally changes the texture of life. And particularly in American life, where so much of our society is structured around having a car, it makes a huge difference. And we notice it going back and forth with the different places where we either do or do not have an automobile. So there just seems to me something profound, even about the act of walking itself in that and I won't – not even like as in like, oh, well, if you want to have big thoughts like Nietzsche, you need to walk a lot. Um, but even just something about um, life, you know, sort of basic life satisfaction itself. Does that still – does that still seem right to you?
1: Yeah, it does. It does. It seems very, very right to me. I mean it seemed righter when I actually could could walk slash run a lot more easily than I can these days. But I mean I think that um, – I think, I mean, walking is a way that we negotiate our world. And it's it's a particular and particularly interesting way of negotiating the world, especially if we notice that it allows us to slow down and take in the world in a walking pace. Okay? So that's one, one aspect. The 19th century, post-Kantian philosophers were also great walkers. Even Kant... Like he would make his like little Konigsberg perambulation every day. But I mean, uh, if you think about Wordsworth and Coleridge and Thoreau and Nietzsche and James, like they're all great walkers. Um, So too with Margaret Fuller. I mean, like going for a walk and walking was just part of life. And um, I wrote a piece for Aeon Magazine um, several years ago about the relationship between walking and thinking. And you're right to say that you don't need to walk in order to have big thoughts like Nietzsche. But if you're having trouble having big thoughts like Nietzsche, it's good to go for a walk. Walking also provides a sort of critical distance on the institutions and on your daily life that driving does not. Like in driving, you are encaged. Right. And something else is moving you. You are completely sedentary and you are moving through space in a cage like there is very few things that are less natural than that. Right. And so um, the less cage, the better. I'm thinking about Piercig's, um Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, where he says, like, at least in a motorcycle, the air is all around you. You're experiencing the world. You know, and we have our best thoughts when we are experiencing the world, not in our little bubble. So
0: maybe one way that I would reach for to rephrase that is that walking really focuses us on the journey and not the destination, because it's just at its core in the modern world, one of the shittiest ways to effectively get from A to B Um, in terms of like, it's just like, it's just the slowest possible way you could do that almost by definition. Um, and the upside of that is that it forces you, or at least gives you the opportunity to have that experience with, with, with things around you, like you're, like you're talking about like that. Um, whereas when we choose a more efficient route, we are cut off from the experience of the moment. We get where we're going quicker, but it's takes us into this more abstract, less embodied uh, uh, relationship to the world. There's another resonance in your work that I really love that I want to pick up on here. And you've alluded to it a little bit. And maybe this can kind of act as a transition between Nietzsche and William James. But one of the themes that I I see in in, in your writing is, is that you love to read a book especially a historically significant one in the place where it was composed or or the place that it's, you know, sort of details and and that sort of stuff. And I'm a big believer in the right book for the right person at the right time. Uh, I really think there's just no substitute for that. And one of the very few direct paths to finding that right book for wherever you're at, at at the moment is to find something that is a defining book especially in some historical sense, for the milieu in which you're currently in. And uh, one of those books for me, uh, which has loomed very large in my own life, is The Metaphysical Club by uh, uh, Luke Menand. And that was his, you know, uh, for anyone who hasn't you know, uh, heard of that, that's his 2001 Pulitzer Prize-winning um, uh, Intellectual History of American Pragmatism, particularly through the lives of William James, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, and John Dewey. And basically, uh, you know, so Luke Man, definitely my top five intellectual influences on a good day. He's absolutely number one. But at any rate, uh, I read I first read that book when I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it made me it gave me this all encompassing sense of like, oh, my gosh, here are these important ideas. They like happened in a place and that place was right here. And I was walking by William James Hall every day and it was like, okay, this was all here and it just all made sense in everything that i was seeing around me and that sort of stuff uh not to mention just sort of understanding the sort of philosophical underpinnings of, of my own country a little bit better so um you know all that being said uh i i i know you quote you you mentioned the book at least in your william james book and uh uh you know I, i'm sure it doesn't gloom quite so large for you but uh i i guess you know, uh since I know you've at least uh checked it out, I'm curious did that what did you get from that book and um yeah, maybe we can we can use that as a segue through f- through all these things,
1: sure, I mean, it's a great book, and um it's you're right that it gives a real sense of what uh New England and the country on the whole was going through as the Civil War ended and what the Civil War impacted or how it impacted. Um, intellectual life most notably in New England um, that then spread out across the United States and um, I too read that book um, in Cambridge Massachusetts for the first time and um, and it it really did resonate with me quite a bit Um, I think reading books I think you're it's insightful to say that one way of picking books for the right time for the right person is to think carefully about you know place and to think about what one is going through and which books have you either been written in or for that particular place. Um, I live in Concord, Massachusetts, uh, and I write about Emerson, Thoreau, and Margaret Fuller. And um, we live in um, a house that was owned by um, a guy by the name of Thaddeus Blood, And I'm writing a book for FSG next year called American Blood, which is the story of um, the blood family, a very famous family from the 16th, 17th, 18th century, and then into the 19th century in the United States. And, And just thinking about the intellectual influences of this particular house that was built in 1740, that Emerson and Thoreau visited, that, you know, that just... It it brings, the the thoughts bring to life life, a place, and the place grounds the thoughts. Now, you don't have to, uh, one of the cool things, I will say this about American Blood, is that um, to this point, I have been fairly, in my books, I have been fairly geographically uh, narrow in my location. In other words, I go to Sils Maria and I hang out with Nietzsche or I go to the White Mountains where William James had his home and I hang out with him in American Philosophy Love Story. But The Blood Book is a book about eight different American bloods who occupied eight different the chapters are separated eight different American bloods who occupied eight different places in the United States who interacted with eight different American intellectual heroes. And, um, and just to think about the way that life intersects with place, thoughts, and actions, I think is a really fruitful way of going. And, and I think it's not done very often. So um, that's the hope.
0: Well, congratulations, because it sounds like you found a way to write about personal experiences, or at least intersection with personal experience while still being happy. Uh, and that is no small feat. I guess, I don't know if this is uh, you know, too personal of a question, but, uh, just going from the kind of thin slice of, of having, you know, read some of your work and, and talking to you now, uh, it does, I w I, I don't know if I want to call it a, a full on phase shift um, from, you know, depressive to non-depressive, but I don't know, is there something, and we've also talked about you know, how there's this dissociation between happiness in the moment and meaning making later on. And I don't want to discount that, but is there something that was a big shift, uh, that you can concretely point to and say, well, that, that made a big difference in my happiness. And and my experience of life has been much different since that.
1: Yes, I can. So, I mean, my, uh, second wife, uh, woke me up in the middle of the night and, December of you know or February in 2020 and just told me that she had been having a long-standing affair she asked for polyamory and announced that her uh yeah that her partner lived in San Francisco and that she'd been having an affair and and I just couldn't handle it and we we split on the basis of it and um and at that point and uh, I had been trying very hard to that point to integrate philosophy into life in ways that my ideals bore out my actions. And I really allowed the thoughts to generate the decisions that I made in life, or I tried to. And at that point, and then quickly thereafter, I had the cardiac arrest and went through bypass surgery. The relationship between life and philosophy began to sort of come apart a bit. What I mean by that is um, this character, William James's friend, Benjamin blood says that the, another blood character eh, out of the blood. So he says the affirmation of life will never be done by the intellect alone. It will never be the affirmation of life and meaning will never be based on solely on ideals or intellectual justification. They are based on action and on life itself and in, you know, in investing in life itself. And for me, I realized that a lot of my dissatisfaction with the world prior to 2020 had to do with me living in my head so exclusively and um, living I mean, I wrote in my head like I'd be talking to you and I'd be able to have a conversation. And in the same time, I'd be writing something completely different in my head or I'd be writing about what we were talking or how we were talking about that, like memoir style. And then I'd go back to my desk and I'd type what was in my head. And for some reason, after bypass surgery, I wasn't able to do that. And my. My thoughts just kind of shut down. And I discovered that I'm way happier, right? Um, I'm way happier just living and kind of trusting, like, checking in with myself occasionally to see, like, are my ideals in my life too far apart? Are they apart? Like, how are things going? But I didn't allow the philosophical me to drive the ship, if that makes sense, nearly as much as I used to. And that was freeing for me. And um, it did something to my creative process. I had to think about memoir in a new way. Um, But it's changed. It's changed who I am as a partner or as a um, husband. And it's changed who I am as a parent. And it's changed who I am as a creative being. Um, And for me, at least for the time being, it's working. So,
0: Well, I am uh, really happy to hear that. I mean, maybe yeah no. follow up well, so that yeah, You're I like- mean so the, the, I guess the thing that I want to ask about in follow up to that is i don 't want to be too flippant or too dramatic, but I guess i 'm wondering what it says about the futility of ideas or the futility of of philosophy in a sense, and, and what I mean is that you know I, I grapple with this in my own life it 's like well, I spend let's just call it more time than, than the average human. Like really like it's like, it's everything we've been talking about taking ideas seriously in a way that impacts the way you actually live your life. And, you know, we've touched on that in so many different ways. And I sometimes ask myself this question and I sometimes ask it of like, for example, other podcasts, people, I listen to, people who I think are really smart and have like tons of awesome answers and insights, that sort of stuff. Does this person actually get to use that and like leverage that to like live a better life and in, in, in what definition of a better life, like what that mean? So like all these things kind of swim around my head. And usually the answer is something, if not no, then at least no adjacent that it's like, you know, that, or, or it's like a very modestly confined sort of thing. So yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. I think,
1: I think that. That, I mean, I, I, I have thought about this a lot, not that I've come to any particularly amazing answers, but, um, What I think is that when you are faced with serious, um, like my, my childhood was not like perfectly untraumatic. I mean, it was pretty rough. I mean, my, my father was pretty rough with us and he left at an early age and, um, a lot of people, I would say I'll I'll generalize. A lot of people use their noggins as defense mechanisms to justify and escape the world that they've grown up in. And I certainly did that. Like I used my intellect to put on a, you know, put on a, uh, sort of, I don't know, art some, some sort of armor, right. And my intellect was my armor. And I tried to get out of central Pennsylvania and its conservative values and memories of my father. And did all of that by way of philosophy. Like, philosophy was my escape route. I was like, I'm getting out of here. Right? And and I used philosophy to do that. And I thought that the philosophy was, like, helping me out. But then, when you come, more often than not, like, when you use your brain, or when you use your intellect, to um, chart a course for yourself out of insecurity and fear, right, you end up probably generating other problems that are going to be equally traumatic because life goes on. And I think that when I had a second marriage completely implode, and then had cardiac arrest, I thought to myself, wow, like your intellect is not going to get you out of these things. Like, in fact, your intellect probably got you into them. In the first place. So it's probably advisable to just chill out a bit, right? And just live and trust yourself a little bit. Like, I'm now, my wife and I, my wife Kathleen and I have a very much more traditional. Uh, relationship than I ever thought I would, because my philosophical values somehow in the past were out of whack with this traditional relationship. The fact of the matter is, I just want a traditional relationship. I probably always kind of did. Like I'm, a, I'm a monogamous beast, and um, and it's be- for me at least. It was better to think like you know, I don't have to overthink everything, right? So that was
0: my. That's my two cents, I guess. There's so much in that that I love. And one thing that it makes me think of is that so one of the one of the things that you mentioned there is that we use our intellect as a tool in your case for escape, which I think a lot of people will be able to resonate with. But more generally as this forecasting tool as this, as this, you know, planner that like, if I do this, then that, and here's how things are going to work out. And this is my understanding of the world. And based off of that, if I do this, then this will happen. Uh, and you know, uh, so on and so forth. And this is, I mean, as from a sort of cognitive science perspective, this is the glory of our mind. This is what we can do that makes us so special and unique as a species. Uh, but, one of the drawbacks to it I think is underappreciated is that there is this really strong link between that inclination to plan and forecast and think about the future and anxiety. Because what anxiety is in a psychological sense is a bridge between who we are now and our present actions and who we're going to be in the future. So many of our, our other emotions, the vast majority of our our, our emotional our, 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 emotional tool belt is about connecting us to what's going to happen to us in the moment. And when we listen to those, you know, for example, you know, happiness is a lot like that. It's very much, well, the thing that I have now is making me feel good. Um, and it's connecting our present actions with the moment. Anxiety is one of the few things that really, um, Connects us with the future, and so there's there's good things about that. Potentially, you can like it is imp- like it is important to do stuff so good things happen in the future, and anxiety can be channeled in the service of that. But I think it's also for people like you and me, and I'll also say for some other podcast people, I listen to authors that I read. That anxiety comes up because there's so much intellectual energy going into predicting the future, thinking about how things are going to work out. What should I do now to put myself in this position later on? All of that kind of forecasting, even when when it's not necessarily even happening explicitly, uh, can really lead us down this track to really deep anxiety.
1: I also think when you try to negotiate, and this is Kierkegaard and Sworn Kierkegaard and Nietzsche also say that anxiety is the feeling of freedom and hmm. anxiety is the recognition that there are so many possibilities out in front of you that you, do, and you don't have any guidance. It's not like God or your mom or your, leader can tell you which way to go and you have these choices and that sort of vertigo in the face of possibilities is the feeling and also different futures right and trying to plan as you say plan for different futures um that causes a great deal of anxiety and um i'm not suggesting just to be clear i'm not suggesting that we eliminate anxiety entirely i think anxiety is a healthy you know is a health is is, is quite healthy uh, for human beings but i i think that limiting anxiety so that one can still act um is important be, because it's quite possible to have paralysis by analysis um and so i guess i've moved a little bit away from that and quite frankly um a lot of my peers think that i'm anti-intellectual like i've become stupid Or that I'm anti-intellectual because I'm no longer allowing my ideas to exclusively dominate my life. But
0: so be it. Hey, Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another one minute and 30 seconds. If you just want to skip through it. If you have not already, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, I promise you will like the rest of my work, and the Substack Newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes, and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find, which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me, and I really appreciate it, like a lot. But even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work. The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing, which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future. More people on there also means I get more feedback, and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday. If you subscribe to the Substack Newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. Just a quick heads up, we're going to be talking in depth about suicide in this next section. If you're into the conversation, but that's a sensitive subject for you, then feel free to skip 16 minutes ahead from this point. We will be done talking about it, moving on to other subjects. Thanks for listening. This, I think, is is an appropriate time to bring this up. Can you speak to the William James concept of maybe as a route to meaning?
1: In the 1890s, William James was invited to Holden Chapel, which is on Harvard's in Harvard Yard. To give a talk that he entitled Is Life Worth Living to the Cambridge YMCA and to address the spate of suicides that had occurred in the previous couple years. And James takes this question Is life worth living? And instead of giving the sort of standard answer, Yes, and this is why, um, he says, Maybe it depends on the liver. He says, Is life worth living? Maybe it depends on the liver. And at first I thought that I was a complete and utter cop-out, but um, over the years I've come to think that it's the best answer for somebody who has actually tarried with the no, is life worth living? No. Um, For someone who's tarried with that answer, the negative answer, for any extended period of time, the maybe makes much, much, much more sense. And... I think what James is suggesting, he, he's saying that it's up to you to, to determine whether life is worth living, right? It's a, it's up to you in two senses, two senses, important senses. I think first James believes that we have a certain agential power that we are agents in our own destiny and we can make meaning just like Viktor Frankl says in the face of the concentration camp, like I can still find meaning in this hellish circumstance. It's up to me. Right. So that's one aspect of James's comment. The other aspect of James's comment is that he wants to leave the room for individuals to face circumstances that are unbearable. So he doesn't want to exclude the possibility that life really is uh, not meaningful or is completely meaningless for an individual. He wants to allow that. So you can think about, you know, physician-assisted suicide or something like that. Or or the viability of killing yourself under certain circumstances. James wants to allow that possibility, which some of my friends, colleagues, say, Whoa, that's too dangerous of a possibility. But James's reason to give us that possibility is to empower us. In other words, if you feel like life is not worth worth living and you're up on Brooklyn Bridge thinking about jumping, like the, and if somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, why are you jumping? One of the reasons if you really get down to it is they're out, they're, they're out of control. Like they do not have control either emotionally or they feel like they're powerless. And what James is suggesting in the maybe is saying, Hey, you have control right? You can jump. You certainly can, right? But you also may have other possibilities. So you can always kill yourself tomorrow, right? I mean, I think about AA, like you can always have a drink tomorrow. I'll have a drink tomorrow. You can kill yourself tomorrow. But as soon as you jump, you no longer have possibilities. And so James is suggesting, hey, maybe life is worth living. It's up to you. Now, I think that James and most commentators who talk about this essay in the 1890s, uh, talk about these two ways of interpreting it. I think that there's an additional way to interpret James's maybe, which is really powerful. And it's this, that I ask my students, I say, what's the most meaningful moments of your life? And they say, well, it's when I'm playing music or when I'm uh, kissing somebody for the first time, when I'm falling in love, when I'm, um, when I'm having a deep conversation, uh, when I'm playing soccer, okay, and I say, okay, let's look at these experiences. Would they be as meaningful to you if they, if the outcome of the experience was decided beforehand, if you knew in a sort of lockstep fashion whether the game was going to be won or lost on a particular goal? or whether you knew beforehand how the piece of music was going to be played, or if you knew beforehand how the first kiss was going to go. And invariably, they say no. It's that sort of uncertainty that actually allows meaningful interactions to happen or meaningful experiences to happen. And I think that's what James is indicating with the maybe, because he thinks that the universe is shot through with maybes, that is to say, possibilities or chances or opportunities and it's up up to us to negotiate them right but that's where meaning comes from for james it's it's that that the invariability of things allows us to make chance our chance in other words to make to to inter, in in inject or interject ourselves into a particular situation that is not determined beforehand i think that's what the maybe has meant for me at least because when I'm feeling like I want to jump off Brooklyn Bridge, which I have many, wanted one to many times, like I keep myself here because tomorrow might grant myself the interaction that involves a maybe that I can explore at my own risk and my own reward. So that's a long way with James's maybe, but at least three ways to understand it, I guess.
0: There are several things that I want to. Pick up on in that, but I really do want to go into suicide, and maybe even suicide is a philosophical problem, not to get too camus on you, but to, to really yeah there's 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 a couple things I just want to sort of put up uh, here and sort of see see what you make of them, but the first one sort of begins with this this question: is life worth living and like, when I really think about it, to me, this question doesn't make sense. As in, like, in a million years, like, it wouldn't naturally occur in any deep fundamental way in my own mind, for whatever reason. And, like, the more intuitive way uh, is really this question of, like, what should I do next? And then one possibility that's always on the table is, "Mm, maybe I should kill myself. Um, That. I don't know if that's, like, important, but the the way, it, like, when that thought occurs to me, it happens through that, and granted, I do not have the same experiences with the really deep level of, of suicidal ideation that you're describing, but it is a, it is a thought that I'm very familiar with. Um, And in particular, what I make of that is that... So there's this quote from, from Nietzsche that I have here. The thought of suicide is a great consolation. By means of it, one gets through many a dark night. And in that way, I actually... You know, I'm not going <laughs> to want to come across as pro-suicide here, but I don't consider thoughts of suicide and I don't consider suicide the great moral failure that everyone else in our society seems to. I think a lot of people see it as invalidating the life that preceded it, um, but I do not see it that way at all. I see it as just another way to die. And for the experience of, of people who are living through just that, that basic thought itself, um I think, in a like, to me, this makes a lot of sense. But if you aren't thinking about killing yourself, or at least that possibility is not on the table, then you're not considering all your options. Like you're not you're like you're not taking into account the full span of uh, like possible things you could do next to, to 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 frame it in the way that I I sort of uh, I, I, I I said a second ago. And so in that that, that way, I agree with Nietzsche. Like when you frame it in that way. Like there's a kind of liberation in that to me. Like if you're really upset about how things are going, you could kill yourself. It's not untrue, uh, but you know, okay, cool. I think I'll keep going for now. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that that is the conclusion you've gone to when you, when you, uh, you know, oppose that to yourself. So, you know, let me just refer, let me just re reiterate this. I'm I'm not advocating for the, the moral uprightness of killing oneself and, I'm not saying that there are are not cases of, of of really like you know problematic pathological here I am uh in this really bad uh place. Uh, absolutely. You know like all all of that stuff uh, notwithstanding, I think making the even the the basic thought about suicide taboo and saying that there's there's something pa- fundamentally pathological about even considering that, I don't think that's helpful um uh uh in 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 this way of like realistic, so I don't, I don't know. Does that does that make any sense? Is that too far? Does that resonate with your thinking?
1: A lot of it resonates. I I have a couple things to say. I mean, I think that um, he says that the thought of suicide has you know comforted me through many a dark night, and um, there are a couple t- different issues here, like when. First, I'll say that the vast majority of suicides aren't brought on by intellectual cogitation, which I oftentimes thought that that was the case, right? And, and like when I was nineteen, I really thought that it would, that most suicides were brought on by like you know you just deciding that the universe was completely screwed up and you know and that you have no rightful place in it and it's better to go. It, it, Suicide is uh, to my understanding and my experience of it is that the most dramatic uh, impulses are, um, anger and, um, anger directed to yourself and, um, and hopelessness. And those are real feelings, right? Those are like, it's not. And, and that really changed the way that I think about suicide and also the way that, um, I address it in my writing. So in William James, in the book um, Six Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James Can Save Your Life, I'm trying to speak directly to those feelings, the feelings of hopelessness, the feelings of anger, the feelings of deep anxiety, of not being able to move forward. Those feelings, I think, are what oftentimes tip someone into really serious suicidal ideations. Now, if you backtrack and think about let's uh, when i talked about suicide with hiking with nietzsche it was this type of existential question about whether life actually had meaning and it, it it occupied my it occupied many a day and many a night and i and i thought that i was being a good philosopher like really thinking it through because i didn't necessarily believe in an all you know loving god or i didn't believe in an all loving god i didn't believe in I believe that, the, like Camus says, that the universe is absurd. that And that absurdity is felt by um, my human purposes against a perfectly indifferent universe. And nothing would change. And I would always be Sisyphus, you know, pushing the rock up and it, it coming back down. And why the hell bother, right? And I think when when, when Camus says something like, or he says at the beginning of the myth of Sisyphus, he says there is but one serious philosophical question and that is suicide. Um, Everything else is, you know, dancing on the head, head of a pin, according to Camus. What he's saying is, do you have a good account of your life given your existential situation? And if we take Camus as being correct, that, there is no God, that there is no sort of rhyme or reason to nature, that uh, we can hope for certain things, but we, you know, mortgage our present constantly on a future that is not guaranteed to us. Like, if we, if we experience the absurd in the way that Camus does, which, frankly, I do often, um, the question then is, can you still make meaning in the face of that void, like in the in the face that nothing really matters in any cosmic sense, and 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 Camus like, what do you think? Can can you work it out? Can you get there? And um, for a long time, that really bummed me out, and it really took me to some very dark places when I was nineteen, and then again in hiking with Nietzsche. Um, but I've now. I mean, at least in part, turned a bit of a corner where if you can face suicide, William James says, no man has been properly educated until he has seriously considered suicide. And I can, you know, that's what he said. I, and I would say and no person has been properly educated until they've really thought about, um, you know, suicide, which is also the meaning of, like, are you going to get to the end of your life and look back as the Rose said and discover that you haven't lived? You thinking about suicide is tantamount to that deliberation, right? It's, it's saying like, why am I here? Like how best to spend my time? There's that famous Tolstoy, like what is to be done? Like that's the, that's what Tolstoy asks. And that, that in part resonates with what you said earlier, um, which is, um, for me, the question is, what should I do, right? And suicide should be on the table along with every everything else. Well, I think that might be the case, but suicide also, the, the prospect of no longer being, should be an impetus to get on with it in a most urgent way, right? For Camus, and with Sisyphus, right? And with William James, at least. And also, I would say, with Nietzsche. I mean, if you think about the sheer productivity of these individuals, it was, I think, in part with the realization that it could be cut short or they could cut it short at any point. And to fill the space as best you can, Thoreau says, improve the nick of time. And I don't think that you really get that unless you are seriously thinking about human finitude, and one way of doing that is thinking hard about suicide. So... I don't know if that resonates at all.
0: No, those are so many. <laughs> Thank you for, for, for putting a lot more nuance and some really great points to, to what I said uh, previously. And there's something I kind of want to return to the... Or I want to I continue talking about the uncertainty of it. Because one of the things that I really can't stand about the question, does the universe have cosmic meaning? And that's that it really fundamentally mis, uh, misinterprets the mechanisms of how meaning is made. Because meaning is always contextual. There is no such thing as uncontextualized meaning. Uh, people might point to God and say, well, that is the ultimate source of meaning. But God is only uh, meaningful, first of all, if there was a God, but setting that aside... Uh, in the context of the thing where he is the ultimate end all be all, that is, the, he is b- defined as the context. Anyway, um, contextualizing the meaningfulness of a pursuit, of an activity, of a word, of anything that has some sort of, uh, you know, meaningful value to it, it happens within the context of something. And this is something that you have talked about in particular uh, with. William James in his context uh, as having a, a privileged background. I've heard you talk about this in other interviews as well as in the sort of opening to the, the William James book. Um, but when you come from a more precarious background, you know, the big questions are about paying your rents and putting food on the table and that sort of stuff. William James didn't didn't have that. Uh, you know, so once once those are assuaged, you know, he came from a very uh, you know, uh wealthy background, uh, and his father really took his education seriously, then you start grappling with these big questions about life and what it means. And you know, to be honest, in that battle, the the question often wins, right? And so it all comes down to though where you look for meaning in your life is in those places where there is uncertainty. And once the uncertainty is satisfied, then you say, okay, great. I don't have to find meaning in that anymore. And of course, you don't say it's explicitly. This is sort of happening on an implicit level. And then you move on to whatever the next level thing is, uh, where you have uncertainty until it gets to evidently, you know, questions of, of cosmic meaning and that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that that point that, that you make about uncertainty is is a really... Really big one, and, and plays a big part in some of the stuff that, that we've been talking about in the context of, of, of larger uh, pursuits of, 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 of his life worth living.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that that's that's correct. I, I mean, I think a little bit about John Dewey um, wrote a logic book that nobody really liked, but he says something which I did stick with me: is that um, that we encounter problematic situations and meaning is made in the course of negotiating problematic situations and problematic situations just mean uncertain unstable precarious situations um and it's weird to me that like so many people want stability and oh, i heck i i want stability sometimes but um what we really don't we don't we don't recognize that the the meaningfulness of life turns on instability and turns on negotiating instability.
0: Um, So something to think about, I guess. I I think that's a a point that I kind of want to bring to as we're getting toward the end here, which is I think that's a really profound insight about embracing uncertainty. Um, And this is something that I've been thinking a lot about in the context of my parents' divorce, my parents uh, decided to get a divorce, you know, three or four years uh, ago now, and it made me realize something, which was that I had always kind of at this like very deep level conceptualized life as this process where you're starting sort of trying to minimize uncertainty. So you find a job, you find a partner, you find a house, you, you know, you, you you start your family. And once you do all those things in the right way, once you find the answer to those, you reach this point of like quiescence where there's no more big problems to figure out. There's no more really sort of like, you know, big things that can go wrong. And that divorce uh, made me real. And I wouldn't have necessarily endorsed that at, at an explicit level. And the thing w- about the divorce was that that really unearthed that for me at this very, you know, like core level that it, I would have had a hard time, you know, sort of putting my finger on otherwise. And uh, I really think that opened my eyes to kind of what you're talking about here, which is that there is no point of quiescence. There is no place that you can get to where all the big questions are answered. Something can always go wrong no matter what your circumstances is and from your relative point of view. Um, But that's not a bad thing. That's actually when you get to the point of recognizing that, that is in grappling with that and in, in, in sort of figuring out how to negotiate that situation, um, that's where you find a lot of the meaning in life. That's where you find a lot of those moments of significance. And if you close yourself out to that, if you do actually attempt to have that sort of placated stability, then you miss out on that. And that's uh, that's the sort of flip side of that coin, and I think there's a lot about that that's missed in the way that we generally talk about uncertainty and stability and meaning and you know, kind of you know, just to put it in a word, the end goal of 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 life.
1: Yeah, I mean, my friend, um, the um, John McDermott used to say, you know, think biologically, and if you think about cell uh, you know, cell movement slash, uh, transfusion, like the, the, the passing of the passing of liquids slash elements from one cell to another. Like in our society, we think that balance and equilibrium are good things, but it, at, at a cellular level, you know, what perfect cell equilibrium means? It means death. Like <laughs> it's not, it's not, that's yeah. not a Like if there's no exchange, if there's no movement, if there's no tension, if there's no pressure, like it's death. And, um, and I, I always, I was a student when he said this to me and I was like, yeah, you're right. Like the tension, it's a good tension. My, um, another friend or colleague, I guess, Paul Bloom, um, wrote a book lately called The Sweet Spot about suffering. And, um, Bloom says that like a certain amount of suffering is actually really healthy and you got to have the friction right up until the very end. And so I uh, literally anyway. just
0: talked to Paul Bloom two days ago for this podcast. And we, we talked an awful lot about, uh, about that and gotten some really, there was, there's quite a bit of back and forth in terms of, of theories of meaning and, and the role that suffering, suffering plays in them. That's interesting. Uh, Awesome. Can I ask you one final question here? Sure, go ahead. Uh, uh, what are three books that have most influenced the way you think?
1: I mean, I mentioned Walden, and I have to say it again, unfortunately. Um, thus Spoke Zarathustra by Nietzsche, and then Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And if I can add one, Irving Yalom's Existentialism and Psychotherapy. Um, so those those are four books.
0: Uh, most influence. So, Walden, perhaps, you know, lots of ink has been spilled on that one. People will, will have heard that. Man's Search for Meaning is by far and away the most um, cited book on this show in terms of uh, that question. Um, can you say a little bit about Zarathustra and why that one in particular out of Nietzsche's entire collection? And then I also am not familiar with the last one. So, before I let you go, can you briefly just touch on that?
1: Zarathustra is Nietzsche's. Um sort of keystone work, which is a um, it's hard to call it it's a a, um, piece of fiction it's a novel but kind of it's a sort of meditation meets confession, meets novel Um, and it tells a story of an individual, Zarathustra who is um, the way I read it is struggling to become who he is and um, goes through a, a whole number of interactions with others and interactions with society and his culture that show or reflect the different moves that individuals in our modern age might find themselves in. So for example, there's a moment where uh, he confronts the priest or the authority figure, and the authority figure is giving him some sort of guidance. and Zarathustra throws you know, throws the the shackles off. and then 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 the question is, how can one nonconform you know be nonconformist when 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 he has followers? and then how does one think about individualism and how does one think about um, creativity as being the basis of uh, uh, being human? Um, that's where Zarathustra and Nietzsche sort of end up, like give birth to the dancing star, um, or try to, I mean, um, figure out what creativity is, not figure it out, but do it. And, um, and it's for, for a young man in central Pennsylvania who was brought up in a fairly conservative Protestant household, like this was just a firebomb for me. It's a, it was just a, Moment where I thought, oh my God, I can get out of here. Like I can go to the mountains, <laughs> which is what Zarathustra does, and then I'll come back down and try to speak to others, and then I'll get frustrated and go back to the mountains, and this is the way of life, uh, just like Zarathustra. And for me, it was like it, it just rocked my world. And um, so that's that. And then the the last book, Existentialism and Psychotherapy. Um, Irving Yalom. If you've read Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, Yalom is a nice next step. So he also wrote a book called um, When Nietzsche Wept, uh, in a novel which I really enjoyed. Um, Yalom is basically taking the insights of European existentialism and continental philosophy, basically from Hegel to late existentialism, and applying them to a psychoanalytic, you know, mindset. And so what you find in logotherapy with Frankl, is pretty adjacent, is pretty similar to what you're gonna find with the Yalom, but it's 600, 600 or 700 pages.
0: John, thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation, and there's so much I loved in here. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Well, I have to thank you um, for this time, it's been a real pleasure.
0: That was my conversation with John Keg. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to my SubSec newsletter. That is the main feed for my content where I publish both my weekly podcasts and a weekly essay. Subscribing to that is the single biggest way you can support this show, and I really do appreciate it. You can find the feed at themeaninglab.com. That is themeaninglab.com. And as I said in the intro, if you are listening on Spotify, please consider taking a moment to give the show a five star rating. It takes just a couple seconds. If you are on the Meaning Lab homepage, it shows the logo and says follow or following click the three dots. Then it'll say rate show, select the fifth star and press submit. That is it. And it really does help a lot in growing the show's audience on the platform. You can also click the follow button to subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you for listening. And I'll be back here next week with another episode of the Meaning Lab podcast.